This is In The Word with Malcolm Weber. To summarize, leadership should not be entered into for what you can get out of it, whether financially or any other way, that leadership should be gotten into for how you can serve others through that leadership. That is an leadership. Welcome to In The Word with Malcolm Weber. As his first letter draws to a close, Peter returns to the subject of suffering offering encouragement and the hope of glory on the other side of affliction. Dr. Weber opens up the final chapters of 1 Peter in the second part of his exposition of 1 Peter 4.12 through 5.14. Chapter 5. And here, Peter moves into the last exhortation of the epistle, and he begins out addressing the leaders in the church. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. He addresses the elders, and he's not just talking about the older people here, he's not saying to the oldies among you, but specifically the elders among you. He's talking about the appointed leaders of the church. Notice where these elders are. Where are they? They're among you. They're in the midst of the people. See, they're ministering in the midst of the life of the church, ministering. They're not just these removed religious hierarchies, officials that are off there in their ivory tower or different from the rest of us. But the elders are among you. I appeal as a fellow elder. Peter here proves that he was not the first pope. What was he? An elder and a fellow elder. I'm just like you, he says. You see, he's describing himself as being on exactly the same level as these leaders here that he's addressing. Also, this gives him the right to address them in this way, because he's an elder himself. He knows what they're going through, so it gives him the right to exhort them in this manner. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings. Peter was a witness. Peter personally saw the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He witnessed them, and now he's witnessing to them. On the basis of what he's personally seen, he's expressing the gospel and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he describes himself as a witness of Christ's sufferings. He could say that he's a witness of Christ's resurrection, right? Couldn't he? And that would be fine, and elsewhere that is the way that they would talk. You know, in the idea of witnesses, the, the apostles were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. But here he says he's a witness of his sufferings. Why do you think he does that? Why does he choose sufferings instead of resurrection? Any clue? Well, what's his context? Yeah, very good. Very good. His context is sufferings, isn't it? His general context here. So the circumstances of the people that he's addressing is that they're undergoing sufferings. And so he's tying in the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice it doesn't stop with the sufferings. I'm a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. I'm a witness of his sufferings and I'm also going to be a sharer of the glory. There it is again, the tying in of the sufferings now and the glory that's going to be revealed. The connection of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter here, it's implying that he either has or will be a partaker in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ because he will be a partaker in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter is sympathizing, he's expressing his oneness with the people that he's addressing now, those who are suffering now, but he's showing us 
that the sufferings now are what will bring the glory later on. And this is a theme that Peter comes back to again and again. Peter, of course, was not the only one. Paul did the same thing. And many times he would speak of the sufferings now and of the glory that those sufferings are working in us, the future glory that will come as a result of the sufferings. That's encouragement. Why? And this is why we should live looking at eternity and not just being overwhelmed by our afflictions and circumstances now, but having our eyes set upon the glory that is to come, the glory that these sufferings are actually working in us. Praise God. That gives us encouragement and strength to endure now. And then here are Peter's instructions to the leaders. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Be shepherds. Drawing on the image there, it's an image that's used a lot in the scriptures regarding leaders. They are shepherds of God's flock. And shepherds guide the flock. They lead the flock. Shepherds guard the flock. They protect the flock. Shepherds bring the flock into the place of rest. Shepherds feed the flock. Shepherds do a lot of things. Shepherds keep the flock from wandering away. They bring them back when they start to wander. They bring them back. They protect them from danger, from wild animals or from thieves. They feed them. They go after them when they're lost. They prevent one of the sheep from taking advantage of the other sheep. They maintain unity within the flock, keeping all the sheep moving in the same direction. And they give them individual care. And I'm sure many other things we could think of that shepherds do. Be shepherds of God's flock. Who owns the flock? They're his. This is a huge responsibility, isn't it? A very serious, sober responsibility. Because the sheep do not belong to us. They belong to God. But they're under your care. They're God's flock, but they're under your care. He's given you responsibility. And if you're an elder, if you're a leader, he has given you specific sheep, a specific flock that is under your care. It's not just a general sense, well, I'm a leader and so I've got a ministry to the whole body of Christ or something, which is the way a lot of people think. But there's a specific group of people that God gives you responsibility for. They belong to him, but he's entrusted them to you to be a, a caring, loving shepherd to them. They're under your care, serving as overseers. So he speaks of the leaders as shepherds, and then he speaks of them as overseers. This is as supervisors. Their responsibilities to lead and oversee. Do it not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Don't do it because you have to. Because, oh, well, God's called me to do this, so I have to do this. If God has called you to do it, you do have to do it. And if that's the only reason you do it, you'd probably better do it, but don't do it for that reason. Don't do it just because you have to, but do it because you want to. If you're doing it because you have to, then you'll do it half-heartedly. I've heard of men that say, God's called me to do such and such, but before I'll come and pass this particular church, what are your retirement benefits like? Well, nothing wrong with retirement benefits, but if that's going to make the difference between whether you do it or not, or what's the health plan, if that's going to make the difference... Well, goodness me, you need to be concerned if God has actually called you to be a leader or if you're just a hireling. Very true. Don't do it because you must. Because if you're doing it because you must, then you'll do it with half your heart. You'll do it grudgingly. I've met so many leaders over the years that were leading grudgingly. They were leading half-hearted. They were leading because it was all they could do. They couldn't get a job doing something else, and so they were a pastor of a church or this sort of stuff. What a sorry situation. Terrible. And 
the lack of spiritual vitality in those men was reflected in the lack of spiritual vitality in the flock that they were overseeing. Very much so. There's a lot we could say about that. Don't do it because you must. Don't do it half-heartedly. Do it because this is your passion before God. Do it from a real desire to serve. Do it because you are willing, as God wants you to be. And this is particularly meaningful when we understand that we're talking about a context of persecution here. In times of persecution and suffering, who's going to be the first one that gets hit? The leader. This is what's happening in China for many years now. Of course, it's the leaders that they hit because you smite the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. Back in the Anabaptist movement, when that first happened, the life expectancy of an Anabaptist leader was a couple years. That was it. And these were men who were in their early 20s. This is why the Anabaptists, in comparison to some of the other reformers, such as Calvin Luther and you know, those guys, this is why the Anabaptists never developed as strong a theological heritage as what other, what we could call branches of the Reformation did. Theologically, it's not as strong a movement, and it's because they didn't live as long. Simple enough. You'd get saved and you'd be a leader at the age of 20, 23, something like that. Maybe a little younger, a little older. And you were expecting to die within a year or two. You were expecting to. Leaders didn't live very long. They'd be executed by the establishment, the religious establishment. So this is particularly why in times of persecution and suffering, don't do it because you have to. Because when persecution comes, you're just going to back down and throw in the towel, aren't you? You're going to run. You're going to give up. You're going to give up when times get hard. You're going to give up when things get hot. When the burning gets hot, it's going to be too hot for you. You understand? Do it because you love God and you love His people. Do it out of genuine service. Not half-heartedly, not because you must. And do not do it because you're greedy for money, but because you're eager to serve. Literally, the Greek is, do not do it for disgraceful gain. So if the motive for the elder's ministry, for his service, for his leadership, if the motive is money, Peter says that is disgraceful for a leader to have as his motive financial gain through being a spiritual leader. But he says, and there is so much of that that goes on today. I have seen so much of what drives. This is why we don't get excited about a lot of stuff that other people get excited about. It's because maybe I've been behind the scenes. Maybe I know what's actually driving the thing. And it's money. So what? It is. And that may surprise some, or what's the word when you had hopes and they were dashed? Disillusion, yes. That may disillusion Christians. I know it does all the time when things come out and the real motives are revealed of people and ministries and all this sort of stuff. But guys, it happens more than what you would realize. You would be deeply disappointed if you knew the extent to which money drives leadership and ministries and spiritual things in the Church of Jesus Christ today. You would be very disappointed. I have been, but I go on out of love for God, praise God, and by His grace want to be one of the ones that do it for the right reasons and for them from the right motives. So do not do it greedy for money, but eager to serve. And it's a very strong word that is used there. It means zeal. It's not just being willing, but it means zealous. It means eagerly, you know, wanting to, zealous. So your desire is not for gain, but your desire is the good of the flock. You're zealous for the protection and the well-being of God's flock. So to summarize, leadership should not be entered into 
for what you can get out of it, whether financially or any other way, that leadership should be gotten into for how you can serve others through that leadership. That is New Testament leadership. Verse 3. So he talked about motive for leadership in verse 2, and then he'll talk about style of leadership in verse 3. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Not an authoritarian. Uh, you will have authority, and there may be times, as Paul said, where you must deal with a rod of iron, but nevertheless, your general attitude and approach will not be one of lording it over the people of God. And that's the idea of the leader using his position to exalt himself and to put the people down. Don't lord it over those entrusted to you. Again, he's emphasizing the sheep of God. That's why you cannot and must not lord it over them. They belong to him, and he takes his property very seriously, and he takes the way that they are treated very seriously. Don't lord it over them, but be examples to the flock. Be a model, be an example to the people of God. And then when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Who is the chief shepherd? The Lord Jesus, of course. And Peter again emphasizes that the leaders are not the ultimate leaders of the people, but the leaders are only stewards of the flock for the great shepherd. The shepherds here are merely under-shepherds for the true shepherd. They're his sheep. And so when the chief shepherd appears, which will happen when? <laughs> Amen. Do it, Lord. <laughs> He's speaking about Jesus' return, of course, which both Frederick and I hope is tomorrow night, or even better would be tonight. Amen. We know that it won't be on January the 1st, but nevertheless, <laughs> we're hoping it'll be before and uh, the second. Let's hope that. Amen. Where were we? <laughs> and when the chief shepherd appears, when he returns, because what's he going to do when he returns? He's going to judge us all. We're going to give an account for what we've done with our lives. And he's going to hand out the rewards, man. Praise God. So this is, whoa, isn't that, isn't that great? See, this is what we're living for is when the chief shepherd appears. We're not trying to get a temporary short-lived benefit out of something now. That's what we're living for, eternal glory. When he appears, then you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. The crown of glory that will never fade away. Not like earthly crowns, which... In Peter's time when Caesar or an athletic hero or something, and they would have these crowns made up of leaves and so forth, you know, which would last for a while and then fade away. But this crown of glory that those who are faithful will receive will never fade away eternal. Praise God. And then in verse 5, he moves on to the young men. So that's all he says about leadership here, which I think is huge. And I think it's very significant that Peter, just like the other New Testament writers... When speaking about leadership and church government and so forth, the New Testament does not promote or even define one particular, precisely defined system of church government. Now, if you read some books written by you know, certain denominational teachers, you'd, you'd think that they did. You know, I mean, some people, you know, the congregation's got a vote or... There's an eldership, and they're the ones that are in charge, and everybody works for them. You know, and everybody's got their strong view on this is the New Testament pattern of church government. This may not interest you much, but it's thought about and prayed about for two decades now. What is the New Testament pattern of leadership and of church government? And this is what God has taught me over the years. One day you sort of realize something, that the New Testament doesn't give us a definition. You know, it's like, duh. 
And you look, what is it, what is it, what is it, what is it, is it this, is it this, is it this? Well, it doesn't give us that, it just doesn't. Hmm, why do you think it doesn't? Why do you think the New Testament does not give us one formula for church government that's precisely defined? Here's how you do it. You have this position and this lasts for so many years and they uh, report to so-and-so and this, you know, and the way that we do when we set up governments and church stuff, you know? You understand what I'm saying? The New Testament doesn't do that. It doesn't give us a precise, defined, exact, intricate, detailed definition of church government. Why do you think he doesn't? Why do you think God doesn't do that? Any idea? It would tend towards legalism. Good. Why else? Thank you, because it's going to vary. Because church government will vary. It'll vary. I've identified at least three dimensions along which lines church government will vary. Church government will vary according to geography. Huge differences between the city church and the country church. In structure. In the kind of structures necessary for the church to survive and thrive according to where you're located, country or city. It will vary according to culture. A church in India will need a different system of church government than, say, a church in America. I think, where are we now? America. Uh, some people are very dogmatic and they say, well, the elders have got to be in charge of the church because that was the Jewish system. Well, that's fine. But that's not how they did it in the Gentile churches in the Roman Empire. Hmm. You know that? In the Jewish churches that came up, elders were in charge of the church. They were kind of like the final authority of the church. According to that culture, they have the local synagogue and usually be you know, a number of elders that would run the synagogue. In the Roman churches, in the Gentile nations in the Roman Empire, Rome had much more of a, probably what we could call an American style of leadership, which is more a leader is in charge of the church. And so, you know, so there would be different roles of elders and, you know, and functions and so forth. Different styles of church government according to culture. Isn't that fascinating? So, church government will vary according to geography, church government will vary according to culture. And let me give you another dimension. And these are just ones that I've identified. There may be more. If you can think of one, tell me. Church government will vary according to the level of maturity that the church is at. Right? According to time. If Paul has just come to town, the apostle, Paul the Apostle, he's just come to Elkhart. Nope, there's no Christians in Elkhart. Paul comes and he gets a few people saved and he starts a church. Okay? Plants a church. Who's in charge of that church? And don't be spiritual and say the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, of course he is. But who's in charge of that church in human terms? Paul's in charge of the church, right? They're new baby believers. Hi. He's not going to put them in charge, is he? I mean, the decisions and authority structure and so forth is going to be pretty Paul-centered, at least for a little while, isn't it? Now, not for long, because Paul really believed and practiced in the, the vital life of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believers, and he looked for God to raise up local leaders very quickly. He believed that God would do that very quickly. And he did that with sobriety as well. He says to Timothy, don't lay hands on an elder suddenly. He's not talking about praying for deliverance or healing. He's talking about establishing, appointing someone as a leader in the church, an elder in the church in that context. So there's a balance there of they expected and they practiced that God would do it quickly, but they were also sober and serious about it. They wanted to be sure that the leaders were of God and you know, had sufficient maturity and so forth. So there you can see that in the maturing process of the life of the church, the structure of church government, the system of church government, form of church government can change. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So this is why God doesn't want to just sort of give us 
is the way to do it. And so then, as their brother said, we're trying to legalistically fit that pattern when it may not work for our culture, it may not work for our geography, it may not work for the maturity level of our church. Isn't that fascinating? I find that absolutely fascinating when I realized that and began to understand actually how church government works. We're not trying to recover some single church pattern. We want to look like the New Testament church, which we do. We do want to look like the New Testament church, but we don't do that by isolating the exact form and then squeezing ourselves into that form. You understand? To be New Testament, we need the life of the Holy Spirit is what we need. That's what we need. We need the apostolic church with the power and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Then we will have the New Testament church. It's not just by legalistically following, squeezing ourselves in a particular mold. We could talk a lot about that. We need to move on. I find that absolutely fascinating. And you can see that here. It would have been a great place, would it not? If God wanted to give us that little or big formula for church government, structure and systems of order and authority and who relates to who and who's the boss and who... It would have been a perfect place, but he doesn't do it. Instead, what he talks about are three things here. Number one, he stresses the necessity of leadership. He stresses the right spirit of leadership. And he stresses the general responsibilities of leadership. Okay, the necessities of leadership, the elders who are among you, the spirit of leadership in verse 3, not lording it over and doing it willingly and so forth. And the general responsibilities of leadership, the shepherding of the flock and oversight and so forth. That's what he deals with. You see? If we have those things in place, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, we will have New Testament church pattern. Praise God, are you with me? You see? Rather than thinking it's got to have this organizational structure and then it's New Testament, bless God. You've got so many denominations that are built on that idea that we've got the New Testament structure because we've got elders and they're in charge or the congregation votes on every little thing and that's the way it should be bless God I mean if there's one church government that I certainly can't find even the slightest hint of it's that last one in the New Testament very American democratic approach anyway better move on come on move on verse 5 <laughs> I love issues of church government and that kind of stuff just, to me they're fascinating and they're not unimportant believe me guys the way a church is governed will absolutely affect everything that happens in that church, for better or for worse. It will. You may think it's just a theoretical academic thing. No, it's not. It's where we live day in, day out is church government issues. And so we want to make sure we've got that in place. We've got it in place. We've got the necessity of leadership. So we have leadership. We have the right spirit of leadership and the general responsibilities of leadership being carried out. That's the New Testament pattern. Those five. Young men. In the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Okay, young men. In the ancient world, men were commonly divided into young and old. They weren't, you know, middle-aged. You know, <laughs> today, it was sort of, we're all middle-aged, you know. But they had young and old, and the dividing line usually came around about the age of... Anybody want to guess? What did you say? A hundred. Seventy-five. Fifty. Who said forty? All right. Did you say forty? You were second. He gets the prize. Uh, you were first. Paul was first. Okay. I'm sorry. Paul was first, though. But you were a gracious second. Round about forty. So praise God. Some of us are almost old. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> 
So young men, in the same way, what he means here is just as he has exhorted the elders to fulfill their responsibilities, he's saying young men, in the same way, fulfill your responsibility. Be submissive to those who are older. And I believe specifically he's referring to the elders in the church, to the leaders in the church, although in a general sense this would also be applicable to older people. Be submissive, particularly to the leaders. We young men should recognize the wisdom and the authority of the elders in the church and therefore submit ourselves to them. And that will be very healthy to a young man when he does that. And I say that as a young man, who back when I was a young man, I didn't do that very much back when, when I was a young man. And I paid the price very, very much. And I have learned over the years to submit myself to men who God puts in an elder relationship to me, older, wise men of God. Uh, recognize the wisdom they have, recognize the authority they have, and be submissive to them. Don't just have this spirit of the age which says, well, I know what I'm doing, bless God. You know, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm just going to charge through life and just uh, do my own thing. And oh my. You know, meanwhile, we're saying, here's what you should do. Here's how you should live your life. Here's how, here's how, here's how. Well, I know better than you. Oh boy. Okay. You'll learn the hard way. And it will be hard if that's the way you go. Praise God, God has given us so many young people in this church and that's not their spirit. Their spirit is very much the spirit of submission here that he speaks about. Be submissive to those who are older. Basically, what he says is, leaders, care for the people. People, submit to the leaders. All of you, be clothed with humility one toward another. That's That's all you need. Wow. And that pretty much is about all you need. We write books. We write these 5,000-page books, you know, to explain all this stuff. Peter does it in five verses and tells us pretty much all we need to know in many ways. And this is what he says. Have leaders in place. Have them be of the right spirit. Have them be doing it for the right reasons. And then people submit to the leaders. All of you walk in humility to each other. Period. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to do. Do that. You got the New Testament. You got it. Great. You'll do well. You'll do well. Wow. Simple. Praise God. All of you, young and old alike, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. There's mutual respect here. It's not the elder, I'm, I'm a leader and I'm an elder and I'm going to, ho, 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 you know, but there's mutual respect here. Clothe yourselves with humility. And it's probably a reference to when Jesus took up the towel and he girded himself with a towel as with a servant. Peter was there, remember. I mean, Jesus washed his feet. And quite likely, Peter is thinking of this here. He's saying, clothe yourself with humility. Because, and here's why you should do it, it's because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When the younger do not submit to the leaders, then God calls that pride, and he resists you. He opposes you. And the Greek word is one that is used in time of war. When a king would send out his army in full battle array, that's what God does to the proud. It's a very strong word. It's a very graphic word. So when we have pride, God calls out his armies to oppose us. Yahoo! (laughs) And that's why we should all seek humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. We're so glad you joined us for In the Word with Malcolm Weber, a weekly podcast featuring selected teachings from Dr. Weber's over 40 years of ministry. 
Find more teachings along with books, courses, tools, and other resources from Dr. Weber at www.leadersource.org. Tune in next week for our season finale.